As I begin this talk, I want to immediately call our attention to exactly what's going on in this moment, which is to say there's uh, in me some sense of motivation to speak. Otherwise, of course, there wouldn't be the energy coming up to make the muscular movements that are necessary for this complex act of speaking. And so based on whatever that sense of purpose or uh, sort of the emotional urge to speak, even if it's just because I'm sitting up on a stage and you're expecting me to speak and so I better say something, Whatever it is, right? There's some urge here in this being. Otherwise, there would be no speech. You understand what I'm saying? Right? And so that's coming from the total background of this moment. This is not arising out of a vacuum. Each thought that touches this mind, my mind, each sensation, each feeling in the body comes up out of my history, doesn't it? My whole life is unfolding right now. And it's out of that when this thought touches the mind, oh, okay, an image comes in perhaps, oh, I'm a Dharma teacher. It's just a construct, right? It's just a whole collection of ideas and past experiences, that this moment says, oh, here I am, and look at where I am. I'm sitting up here. My God, I'm two whole steps higher than these people on the floor. Am I any different? Well, I don't know, but I'm supposed to give a talk. It's like it was announced. The mind says it's announced. So here I am, and so there's this urge to speak that's coming out of perhaps the whole setup of external expectations, but it's touching this human being. You understand? I'm a human being. And so these thoughts arise. I've never given this talk before. And here I am speaking. And up out of this urge and the background from which I speak, all of the study of the Dhamma, decades of meditation, Lots of time screwing up in life and lots of time having great triumphs. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Moving rocks out of my garden. You know what I'm saying? It's all preceded this moment. There's neural traces. And it's like this right now, internally, in this being, in this body-mind. It's like this, and I'm speaking. But it just begins here, right? I mean, that's just the beginning touching one part of the story because what's happening now is through this movement of the muscles and the air comes up through and there's tension in my voice, right? Just because if there wasn't, there was no tension. This is all you would get. There has to be the pressure, the tensing of the muscles. There has to be the tensing of the vocal folds, Because without tension, there's no vibration. And the tensing of the muscles that move the jaw, the lips, the tongue. So you're hearing all the physical tensions in this body come up out of this urge to speak. All preceded by the thought urge, right? Like something that I'm going to say, this content that I'm conveying you. I'm going somewhere, right? You have a sense that I'm going somewhere. Do you? You just sort of get a... Maybe that's not totally incoherent, what I'm saying. Right? So, there's that, too. There's an intellect here. Conditioned intellect. All those prior thoughts, and it's like this right now. And out comes these words. But what does that mean, these words? There's this, all of these changes of the body that I just described are creating 
simply a column of air that has pressure fronts. High pressure, low pressure, high pressure, low pressure, so fast that you'll hear it as sound coming through speakers, right? I don't need to go through the whole amplification technology, but it's just making it so you can hear, so we don't care about that. And then there's these these movements of my throat and my tongue encoded on this air pressure that goes across this wave front, goes across the room. And what happens? Touches your body, yeah? Touches your body. It wiggles your eardrum, your tympanic membrane is wiggling. So let's get real here. As I'm speaking, I'm wiggling your body. (laughs) Is that wild? No, please, is that really wild? As I'm speaking, this wiggling right here and here and here, this wiggling is wiggling a fine membrane in your head. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> that's wild. But that's, that's not the end. That's just the moment of physical contact of the pressure wave. So this wiggling, right, moves through the, all the various little bones and so on to the cochlea, which is this like spiral thing. And the cochlea is this magical device. It's got these liquid in it. And in this liquid, there's hairs. This is your body. And those hairs have roots. And those roots are connected to nerves. And those nerves reach up into your brain. So as this pressure wave touches the tympanic membrane, it wiggles the fluid in your head, and these these hairs that are like kelp under the sea are wiggling in the fluid, and then the nerve endings are transducing that into this electrochemical signal to your brain. These movements of my body are entering your brain. Is that intimate? Seriously. Not really. I'm, I'm actually, it's hilarious, but it's also remarkable. But it's not as remarkable yet as it will be if we really consider the next thing in that path. Because when that wiggling becomes that signal and enters, you know, that world of the brain, then the brain is processing it as music. So you hear the pitch of my voice, you hear the timbre of my voice, and when my voice cracks, when my voice drops in loudness, when it drops to whisper, and when the pitch changes, you're hearing my heart because you have learned your entire life how to do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your entire life, your whole body-mind is configured to know how to do this. Because this is how you survive. This is how you know what's safe, what's unsafe, right? What's an angry voice? It's just a different timbre, different loudness. What's a loving voice? What's a question sound like anyway? Can you tell the difference between a question and a statement? Of course because you've learned it your entire life with that remarkable brain of yours, that truly remarkable brain. 
That's only part of it. The same time that the music is happening, you know what's happening? The thing that we think we know something about. The words, right? The language. So, okay, so I've been talking for, I don't know, five, ten minutes. I've said all these words. So before we even move to the words, let's make sure, do you hear my voice? Do you hear the quality of my voice? Can you employ mindfulness, introspection, to notice that as you're listening to the quality of my voice and looking at me, that you're assessing me? Can you see that you're doing that? Can you see that you're checking out, can I trust this guy? See that? Am I safe? Am I smart? Do I know the Dhamma? Am I an idiot? Am I going to abuse you? Am I going to say something that will awaken you? There's a wondering. There's a teetering on the edge. What's here? You know what I'm saying? Should I turn on or should I turn off? Right? You see yourself doing that? At the same time that you're doing all of that, there's language. You're understanding these words as words, as conveying some kind of meaning, right? I've been talking about, for example, what? How the speech and hearing system work. Let me just get to that piece of it, skip all the subtle stuff, right? Did I, was I clear? Did you understand what I said about the ears and the, you know, the throat and all that stuff, Right? Did you understand? I really need, you need to be here with me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That really does help because I really, if you fall off, then it's like man overboard or woman overboard or something, and what are we going to do? We have to go back and like throw out the lifesaver and pull you in. So I, I'm glad you're with me. So you, I've conveyed something in to the intellect, Right? What does that mean? What does that mean? Something that began in this mind, some idea, some notion, some series of thoughts, some characteristics, some structures, some schemas, some philosophies, whatever. Something that was in this brain-mind has moved through and in its own way entered your mind. Do you see? I'm stating something so obvious that if I don't point it out It's just going to be invisible. We'll take it all for granted. So do you see what I'm saying? That there has been a very simple mind-to-mind transmission. Anybody disagree? Okay, there's all kinds of things we could criticize, like, well, is the language, do I understand the word awareness the same way you do, or to get really complicated, the word love, which I haven't really used yet. The word meditation, I can guarantee you, we have different thoughts about. Okay, so there's differences, fine. But look at what has happened. So we're in this intimate human contact where you're assessing my heart, really, my integrity, my intelligence. And I'm in some way assessing yours. Am I safe up here? Right? Are you listening? I'm assessing your attention. Am I wasting my time? Do these people care about anything I'm saying? Do they want to learn? Do they trust me enough for me to go on? Right? So it's going both ways. And there's this 
right now I'm doing all the talking, but there's this mind-to-mind transmission that's happening. So I want to speak for a moment now. You with me? I mean, I mean, you know, you see the points that I've made so far. That this intimate human contact, the power of speaking and listening, the relational nature of what we're doing right now, and this capacity to provide something from this mind to that mind. Okay? So, now I want to touch something about the basic uh, questions of meditation and of the nature of human suffering and this whole really quite remarkable question that the Buddha was asking about the ending of suffering. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. But, of course, that's what he was talking about. So, all of these refined capacities, qualities, that I just pointed out that are ongoing right now, are the result of millions of years of evolution. Not just the last so many thousands of years of language, but millions of years of this organism evolving. We would not have survived as a species if each individual pre-human mammal had gone it alone. Other animals are stronger, faster. Even if we were a little smarter, doesn't matter. The way that we survived is working together. That's all very nice and sweet, but of course, it's fraught with other kinds of problems because part of being together is exploiting each other, and that's the individual competition that we have where I want my genes to survive, you want yours to survive, and we duke it out, and someone dies and someone survives. Right? So there's that level too. Let's not get, let's not, uh, get confused. But the fact is that just as ants have come to dominate the ecosystem at their level of complexity, human beings have come to be the dominant creature on the planet. We are the dominant predator on this planet. And what has enabled this is our social, interpersonal capacities. Our brains are structurally formed to read the minds of others, to understand how you feel, what's safe, are you on my side, can we work together, let's go and, you know, on a hunting trip together. Let's do agriculture. Let's do tools. By the way, here's how to do fire. Let me show you how to do fire. And we take care of our young, and we teach our young these complex things carried by language. The story goes on and on. I don't want to bore you to death. But the fact is that we have, each and every one of us, neurons dedicated to recognizing faces. We have whole brain systems dedicated to understanding these aspects of language and nuance of voice. We have, we have structures of the brain dedicated 
to compassionate, empathic response. Right? So here's this question uh, about meditation and about suffering and about the end of suffering. If we look at the totality of the human experience as it actually is, meaning our everyday lives, our most extraordinary experiences. Think for yourself. How much of your time spent, how much of your thought, how much of your emotional activity and energy is engaged with other people? And when I say other people, I include anything that has to do with other people. Society, all the constructs of society, interpersonal relationships, intimate relationships, non-intimate relationships, anything having to do with money, anything having to do with law, anything having to do with contact with other people, anything having to do with family, anything having to do with things that coordinate with other people, like driving. So think about it. How much? Majority? Vast majority? Does anybody disagree with that? So there's immense uh, activity, would be the kind of driest way to say it. So let me ask you this. Thinking about your suffering now. Make it personal. Really think in your own life about hurt. It's not just the subtle, oh, a dog barks too much, or... Something, you know, I mean, talking about the real thing. Where is the suffering? What really hurts? What really hurts? We even talk about death. We just heard about a death. We heard about someone else's death, someone else's mother's death. You know, it's, even that's relational, yeah? And when I'm going to die, who am I leaving behind? What's undone? That's relational. Me and this moment of non-being, okay. I, that's like existential, individual, no problem. So there's this immense component of human suffering, or in Buddhist language, dukkha, if you will, that's relational. So when the Buddha says something like, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, do you think he didn't mean this stuff? It's not possible, right? It's just absolutely nonsensical. So let's just follow it to the next step. Okay, so from the Buddhist standpoint, Buddhist, you know, doctrine, which I think is quite brilliant, saying, okay, well, what's the origin? What, where this, where the, what, why does this, why are we suffering? What's, what's at the bottom of this? What keeps this going? Why is there so much hurt? It's a very basic question. Why is there so much hurt? Why does it just 
keep coming forward in waves and waves. From the most subtle dis-ease to the really profound sorrow and grief. And, of course, the Buddha's answer to this, when he distills it in, in his, you know, Four Noble Truths, right? Second Noble Truth is tanha, hunger, craving, thirst. There's a sense of lack. There's something that's wanted. And that includes, I don't want that bad stuff. It's too much. And I do want that good stuff, and I don't want it to end. And all of those nuances and all of those really gross, hard-hitting scrapes of the skin and stabs of the thorns and the knives. I mean, life, right? Does anybody not know what suffering is? Hello? I mean, you know, sometimes meditation teachers make a big deal out of, do we really know what suffering is? We're talking about pain, folks. You know? Just this, this life. So, this hunger, dissatisfaction, feeling of lack, this urging, constant urging for the next thing or to get out of the next thing, that pulling back, I want more, I want less, is constantly driving this body-mind to the next encounter, the next encounter, the next contact, the very next contact. Now that includes the next contact with a good piece of food where the eye sees color, red, perception. Maybe there's the fragrance, the sensation, contact with the nose. And ah, it's an apple. And the, the urge. And the taste and then the, the consciousness arises around taste and we want to keep chewing and it's, you know, and then we swallow and then we want the next bite, right? Simple. I'm just eating an apple, guys, right? But it's the same thing, isn't it? When this moment of contact, it's not an apple. It's a pair of eyes. It's a nose. It's lips. And there's perception human being, male. And there's all the proliferations through this mind of this moment of contact. It's not contact with an apple. It's contact with a human being. And there's still this same underlying urging. I'm urging either to be with you, to not be with you, to kind of create a rupture by pulling away and it's much, it's too much. I can't I can't I can't take the intimacy, right? Or I really want the intimacy. Give me. Drink, drink, just like that biting the apple. Right? Do you understand? Are you with me? Okay. And so there we are in this constant flux and this craving for pleasure. Like, I'm going to go on my tea break. I'm going to drink my tea and see my friends, and it will, what? It will feel good. Can you relate? You know, I pick up the phone. I'm going to call my friend. What do you think drives Facebook anyway? Really, who the heck wants to sit there at a keyboard doing Facebook? Or what drives all those telephone calls? It's an urge. Tanha is the, is the Pali word, yeah? Hunger. It's a hunger. You understand? So there's this hunger for pleasure. There's this hunger for becoming, for being, for, for existence. Fear of death. I want to continue to exist. I exist I want to continue becoming. 
becoming a self, becoming moment by moment. And this hungering, this urging, pulls me forward. Only now to exist is not just to have the next moment. It's the urging to exist here in this. So to exist in relation, which is, right, remember that this is evolutionarily built into our total structure, our physiology, our neurology. This hunger, relational hunger to exist, is to exist with the other, is to be seen. Right? So I'm hungering for that. But also, let's face it, if we touch the sensitivity of this body-mind, really touch it with the subtlety of awareness, what do we see? We see how sensitive is each contact, yeah? So sensitive. So sensitive. And sometimes it's too much. So we pull away. We don't look at everybody on the sidewalk as we walk along. We don't necessarily meet the, the clerk at the store. Maybe we don't even meet our spouse or partner or significant other because it's just too much. But sometimes that too muchness is the same as the too muchness of life. Life is too much. Get me the hell out of here. So we want to get out. We urge to escape. And we have all sorts of strategies for it, don't we? We can escape in drugs, alcohol. We can escape in internet. Hey, we can escape. Got a good one in meditation. Get me out. We can escape by turning away. We can escape by turning off. We can escape by overwork. We can, you know, we can escape in the newspaper. We can escape in Facebook. We can escape anywhere. Kind of a turning off of this native sensitivity, this native brilliance and intelligence is too much sometimes. Get me out. That's the vibhavatana. So this, these are our urges, right? This is kind of we're moving through life in these waves. Do you understand? Or is this making sense to you? This is exactly the dukkha and the origin that the Buddha was talking about. Whether it's the urging for, you know, apples and comfortable beds or for other humans. It's the whole, it's the whole shoot and match. But it's constantly being like a slave to all those contacts and the next contact and the next contact being led around by that. Where's the peace? Where's, where's the joy? We might have temporary pleasures. There's plenty of temporary pleasures. But the real joy, the joy that meets this astonishing capacity of the mind, the luminosity of awareness, is actually dulled by all these petty pleasures that we set up to create noise for escape. That's not, that's not the joy that we're capable of. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what is this thing, uh-oh, about cessation, about freedom, about the ending of the hunger, at the bottom of the suffering. What about that? 
What about that? Can you ever get enough of the sensual pleasures? Can you ever get enough of the relational pleasures? Can you ever get enough admiration? Can you ever get enough protection from other people? He's always, he's always wanting more. I think that this is a basic fact. You can never get enough. You always want more. So what is this at the bottom, underneath that? What is our capacity for joy? What is our capacity for living in our natural intelligence? What is our capacity for compassion? for love. What is our capacity for peace? Can we imagine, can we open to a life not driven by hunger? Can we just allow that? And can we say, and now I'm going to say something kind of a little bit radical. The fourth noble truth, the third noble truth is the cessation, right? Cessation of the hunger, the capacity for big word, liberation. But We don't need the big word. We can just talk about this cooling of the fire. But the fourth noble truth, in some sense, this is where we live. And the fourth noble truth is this path, right? This path of uh, skill and cultivating certain wholesome qualities and abandoning unwholesome qualities. And it has to do with right view and right intention and speech and action and livelihood and right mindfulness and concentration, right effort. You know, all that stuff. But I'm going to ask you something actually a little more basic about it. That's why I'm not going to go into every one of these things now because then it just gets like a Buddhist Dharma talk that you might shut off. And I want to keep it as real as I can. So, I want to ask you something. If you understand that this human organism is entirely, thoroughly constructed with relationality intrinsic to everything we do and think, which doesn't mean that it's not also individual, right? It's both. I mean, is your mind the same as my mind? Exactly. Are you having my experience? Am I having yours? Look at me. Could you ever have my experience? Could I ever know what it's like inside your mind? Not a prayer. Now, I can know a lot about it just because I have two eyes and I have a body and when I hit myself too hard, it hurts. When I touch my face, you know what it's like to touch your face, don't you? You can sort of feel this. You have mirror neurons, right? So we can know something, but can I actually know what it's like inside your mind? No, right? So there's this this absolutely unbridgeable gap. Aldous Huxley had this beautiful phrase, the island universe of each mind. I can't know your, I can't be in your universe. Do you understand? So we're not denying that. And at the same time, 
that island universe is entirely relational and relationally conditioned. Do you understand? Every moment of your prior conscious existence conditions this moment. Can we agree on that? And every prior moment we've already agreed was largely in either thought or action or in the body relational. So now you could go out into the middle of the woods and feel safe or unsafe based on how your mom looked at you as a child. You understand? You can feel lonely being with a tree. You can feel overwhelmed by life out in the desert. You understand? So, if this is the case, if the suffering has this, you know, this like uh, immense relational component, and the hunger has this immense relational component, and the cessation is the cessation of exactly that hunger. First, second, and third noble truth. Then let's talk about the path. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Let's talk about the path. How could it not be as thoroughly relational as it is individual? Think about it. How could it not be as thoroughly relational as it is individual? Now, we know there's pieces of it that are named relationally, like right speech, duh. We talked about it already. Right action. It's almost all ethical action, and all ethics is about social, interpersonal stuff. Right speech, right action, right livelihood is entirely social relational, right? So that's easy. We got that. But look what happens. Now we talk about right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And what happens? What happens to your conception of Buddhist practice, of living a Buddhist life, right mindfulness? You close your eyes. You sit by yourself. And that's mostly our formal practice of right mindfulness. Same with right concentration. But doesn't it make sense? And this is really a question for you. Doesn't it make sense that with all that power and subtlety, of relational experiencing as a relational being. That this can not only disturb our mindfulness and concentration, but that it can actually be in service of cultivating mindfulness. Do you understand? That we could actually be in service together, concentration, cultivating concentration. So let me give you an example. Right now. Do you f- feel your body sitting? What's the posture of the body? Where's your head? Do you feel your physical head? Do you know where it is in space? Your throat. Can you feel your throat? Do you feel the bottom touching the chair or the cushion? Can you feel that now? So you feel the body sitting here? So do you notice that flavor of mindfulness coming up as you're aware of the body sitting? 
of the body sitting, and there's knowing, knowing the body sitting, right? Yeah? Okay. So as I'm speaking, this is what I'm experiencing also. I feel this body sitting, relaxing. And there's this knowing, knowing the body sitting. I'm speaking, I feel the vibration at the throat. So how's your mindfulness now? Is it up a, did it up a little bit? It's a question. I need an answer. I need a reply. Thank you. How did that happen? I was reminding you. Right? I was actually pointing out and through my own experience and inviting you to your own experience, the sati came up a little bit, yeah? So that was a really simple, almost trivial example. But now let's say, and now I'm talking about insight dialogue because I teach a relational meditation practice, yeah? I teach this as on retreats and the whole works. So now let's say you and I are sitting together in meditation and there's this understanding that we're both here to cultivate the mindfulness. And so as I speak and you're listening, you pause, I pause, and there's a moment of remembering. Remembering the awareness, right? And so, just by sitting in front of each other, there's this mutual awakening that's happening. But now let's say, as we're engaging in practice this way, with this mindfulness, let's say we have a contemplation, something we're talking about. Maybe death. Let's make it juicy but with lots of pauses so that we're not just falling into our constructs about death, okay? We're talking about death and it's like touching this moment of mortality and trying to get beneath our, our distancing from it and our fear to touch, wow, this very life is fragile now. And you speak to me and you tell me of that fragility, your experience of fragility, and I'm listening. And let's say this goes on for half an hour, an hour. And we've really entered into this investigation together. How much of that time do you think I'm going to be off thinking about my next vacation to Hawaii? Right? Not very much. I'm really going to stay with you. You're going to stay with me. But now let's try another thought experiment. I'd love to give you time for practice, but um, actually with all the liquid breaks and the long, silent sit, we didn't really have time, and I decided to just drop that. So this is our practice. Sorry. So now imagine you yourself are invited to go sit on a cushion and go think about death. Contemplate death with as much truth as you can. Now's the time to go to Hawaii in your mind, right? That's what's going to happen for three quarters of the time with a good sit. Do you, you, you agree or you believe me? Okay, half the time then, if you're a strong meditator, okay? So, at the end of that hour, let's talk about samadhi. Let's talk about concentration. How stable is the mind? And we've really been staying with it. So you've got the sati, the mindfulness, you've got the samadhi, the right concentration... 
the investigation, the Dhammavichaya, you know, the really, what is this experience? Maybe we're investigating impermanence of sensations here and now. Maybe that's our contemplation. And so these teachings come alive as actual experience. The Dhamma comes alive as actual experience. The qualities of the meditating mind get very strong. But very important, these qualities are being cultivated without closing off that relational aspect of the human experience. Now, you may or may not believe me. I have to ask for, I don't want to ask for a leap of faith. I haven't earned that from you. But what I do want to suggest is that maybe a leap of imagination, not a leap of faith. Okay? So let's take a little mind excursion. You've been on retreat. We've been on retreat together for, let's say, just five days. It's been in noble silence, except when we're in insight dialogue in the hall. You've had a lot of silence sitting every day, but you've also had, mm, let's say, a few hours in the afternoon, a few hours in the morning of insight dialogue practice, where constantly coming back relationally, to mindfulness, concentration, with specific meditation guidelines. And dropping back into silence, then back into insight dialogue. Can you imagine actually entering into a stable, and bright mind while present with another. If so, what might be known? In silent practice, of course, What's known most prominently is the relationship with the movements and changes of this organism. The noting of the breath, the new relationship with pain is one of the great gifts of silent practice. A new relationship even with pleasurable experience in the body is one of the gifts of silent practice. A new relationship with this thinking mind and these emotions without falling in. You understand? These are the gifts of individual practice. Can we imagine those same gifts only now arising relationally in the midst of meditation to recognize the suffering enter into a relationship that's not grasping, not pushing away, stable, seeing the fading of the hunger, the fading of the suffering, touching a quality of awareness that is engaged and yet entirely stable. Seeing the self come up with all of its desires and fears and doubts and insecurities, and knowing the nature of that. And gradually, through the practice of letting go, something shifts, a different relationship with all of that, a fading. Can we imagine this? So in some suffering and the end of suffering, So I leave you with that as a thought experiment for yourself to just contemplate. And perhaps 
you might want to uh, begin the same way, perhaps, if you really carry the, you know, the, kind, the, the, the beauty and depth of the Buddha's teachings in your own hearts. Like, maybe you come here every week. I don't know. Maybe you've been hearing a lot of Dhamma, a lot of talks and this kind of thing. I don't know. But can the sense of the path and the sense of the uh, suffering and the end of suffering enter into your life with this vision that I'm sharing? Moment by moment, seeing the greed, hatred, and delusion, seeing the actuality of loving-kindness, not some formal practice, but the loving-kindness that arises when the mind just doesn't pull away and receives experience. So perhaps if I've left any little trace tonight, it will be this sense of perhaps a, a widening, an enrichment of the path. which is really an enrichment, isn't it, of the human experience. Without that enrichment, there will always be a gap between meditation practice and life. Thank you very much for listening. And... Uh, you know, what I'd like to do is move directly into about a two-minute metta practice. But let's not make it weird and formal and like I'm now going to enter into this special practice. Let's just touch what's real here. Okay? Just a little experiment. So here I am talking. A lot of words. I apologize. I hope they've been of service. But now, feeling the body sitting, feeling perhaps uh, an availability to your own experience. What's it really like now? The mood that you're in, is the mind steady? Is the mind agitated? And just receiving that. It's like this right now feels like this. And this natural urge that we have for happiness and peace, really noticing you want to be happy, right? And that kindness towards yourself. You're going to go home. You're going to put yourself to bed. You're going to brush your teeth and put on clothing and You're going to adjust your pillow in bed until it's just right. How kind is that? So touch that kindness for yourself. And just ask yourself, do I want other beings to also be happy? Ask yourself. It's a real question, not something I'm telling you to do. Do I want other beings to be happy? Would you like your friends here to be happy? Everyone here, may they be happy. Really, may you be happy. Free from sorrow. From despair. And beyond this room, across this city, all the fish in the bay, all the birds in the air, and boundlessly across the globe, through the universe. All beings without exception. Boundlessly through space, saturating the entire universe with loving-kindness. Touching every being.
and humbly I accept the loving kindness of every being and creature in return. And I share the benefits of this meditation with everyone. May all beings without exception be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy. May there be peace. May there be peace. May there be peace. Thank you, friends.